Okay, can we turn, please, to Romans chapter 7? We can tell we're kind of dancing around in various places in Romans. We received this request today. Uh, It's mainly for prayer, but our sister Roberta Woodfork lost her, I mean, lost her sister Lorraine recently and wanted us to know that funeral arrangements will be held at Odell Robinson's funeral home in Perrysville. Avenue in Pittsburgh. The information is out at the tape table. And viewing is Friday from June, on June 22nd from 4 to 8. And the funeral is Saturday on the 23rd at 11. And that's from Roberta. And we certainly extend our condolences to her on the loss of her sister, Lorraine. And... If any of you want to just surround Roberta, give her comfort, condolence, and love, there's your opportunity. Romans chapter 7 tonight, and there's, I'm going to start off with several principles, but the, the main topic both tonight and further into Romans 7 will be the liberation of the will, <clears throat> the liberation of of the human will, which is one of the benefits of the gospel. So a couple moments of preparation. Most of you are prepared already, but let's take a couple of moments. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together. We cast our cares upon you now, place our concerns before your throne of grace, whatever they may be, so that we can have undistracted and undivided attentiveness toward what the Spirit has to say to this church on this night. We pray that you will comfort those who are experiencing loss of any kind, be especially with Roberta. And those who are in adversity, we pray that you'll grant them the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience, the fruit of the Spirit, which is faithfulness, most of all, this fruit of the Spirit, which is the love that bears all things and hopes all things and believes all things. And now grant us understanding, Father, For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The liberation of the will is one of the main topics in Romans, and specifically in Romans 7. A few principles to begin with. The human will is not annihilated by the gospel of God about Christ, which Paul proclaimed. Rather, human will, we would call it human free will, or human will itself, is liberated by the gospel. The faith that God ignites in Jews and Greeks, that's Jews and Gentiles, by the gospel, is not just passive grace, which is how it's been defined by some. The faith that God ignites in us is not just a passive grace, but it's an energetic power that works by love. Galatians 5, 6 is specifically revealing in that. In other words, faith is not a privatized passivity that's blissfully ignorant of the suffering of one's neighbor or the suffering in the world. I'll say that again because this is a critique, an answer to critiques of Christianity through history. It is, faith is an energetic power that works by love. It's not a privatized passivity that is blissfully ignorant of the suffering of one's neighbor 
or the suffering of the world. Again, then, the human will is not annihilated by the gospel. It's liberated. Justification or rectification is a gift of God to humanity. And it's an act of God. God acts to rectify or to set things right, not only among human beings, but in all creation. Justification, or perhaps better, rectification, is a gift of God to humanity and to all creation through the faithfulness of God to Jesus Christ. God's faithfulness to his son is the reason for the justification of creation. It's because God was faithful to his son who was obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion because God was faithful to his son. We have justification. He is the justified one as we learn from Romans 6, 7. Romans 3.26 also teaches it clearly in the proper translation of it. And 1 Timothy 3.16. So justification is a gift of God to all of humanity, Romans 5.18, to all of creation, Romans 8.19-23, called the liberation of creation. And it's all done because of the faithfulness of God to Jesus Christ who, by his own free will, was obedient to God's will, even to the extent of a horrifying death by crucifixion. We could say that he was obedient to the Father's will, which is the salvation of all humankind in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 being obedient to that will of the Father, caused him to offer his life as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 6. He, Jesus Christ, and no other is the righteous one whose faithfulness was rewarded with life from the dead and with elevation and exaltation to the right side of the enthroned God in heaven's highest height. He and no other is the righteous one, Romans 1.17, harking back to Habakkuk 2.4, which is one of the prophets whose writings reveal the gospel that's all about God's son. He and no other is the righteous one, whose faithfulness was rewarded with life from the dead and with elevation and exaltation to the right side of the enthroned God in heaven, in heaven's highest height. When God deems or when God wills that it's the right time, he reveals his son to an individual and he evokes In that person, faith. This faith is a gift from God that is subsequent to God's act of justification. It follows God's act of justification. So I say subsequent. So the faith is the gift from God, Ephesians 2.8 describes it, that is subsequent to God's act of justification and God's gift of life. He gives us life, then he gives us faith. It's not that we believe so he rewards us with life. He gives us life and he gives us faith. So by subsequent to, I mean that it follows God's act of justification. Our faith does not lead the way to our justification. 
It's the gift of God that follows God's act of rectification. The act of rectification is God's act in Christ by which he sets right all that is wrong in and throughout his creation in and throughout all time. Now, these are all pretty large theological principles, but we'll get down into some of the raw interior of Greek exegesis in a bit. Until God reveals his son to us, our will is enslaved to powers that are too great for us. Of those suprahuman powers, the foremost is sin. Sin as a suprahuman cosmic power in the view of Paul. This is Paul's view being recovered now. It's been lost and now it needs to be recovered in our time. If we're going to live by the gospel, we have to recover this truth. That we are justified apart from an act of our own will. Listen, this is all about the liberation of the human will. That we are justified apart from an act of our own will. Does not mean that our will is annihilated by the gospel. It means that our once enslaved will is liberated. All the commands of God in the scripture, in the New Testament, are addressed to the liberated will of man, not to his enslaved will. And all of them are only fulfilled by the Spirit of God as we walk by means of the Spirit and are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. The commandments of the Sinaitic law, and I say Sinaitic because it must be distinguished there's a lot of words that need distinguishing we need what is called a differentiation of consciousness here that means the law that came from Sinai Paul does some very almost avant-garde exegetical moves in Galatians about this law and in Romans he has to kind of smooth it out a little bit because he was in a theological rage when he wrote Galatians It doesn't mean he was wrong in anything he said. He was supremely correct in everything he said. But some of the things he said were misinterpreted, and Romans kind of smooths them out. But the Sinaitic law, the law of Moses that we call it, which involves a commandment to be observed, The commandments of the Sinaitic law that are enclosed within Torah cannot result in justification in God's eyes. Even if they are obeyed, that's the point. It's not that the law can't be obeyed because Paul said with respect to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. He's not kidding there in Philippians 3, 6. But in the same breath, he says, in my religious zeal, I persecuted the messianic community. And with respect to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. Which means that Paul is assuring us that he was not liberated from his enslavement to cosmic powers like sin by his blamelessness in the law. The law was incapable of liberating his enslaved will. What liberated his enslaved will was the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, a revelation of Jesus Christ to him, which when the father deemed it time to do it, he did it. That liberated Paul's will. And when our will is liberated and we walk by means of the Spirit, our true freedom begins because we will what God wills. 
and we begin to want what God wants and will what God wills. That's freedom. There's only really one kind of freedom that the Bible describes, and it's the freedom of obedience. But it's through a liberated will. The commandments of the Sinaitic law that are enclosed within Torah cannot result in justification in God's eyes, even if they're obeyed, and even if one can be regarded as blameless with regard to the observance of the law. And this was a truth that was at first painfully discovered by Saul of Tarsus when God was pleased to reveal his son to him. In Galatians 1, 12 through 16. But this man Saul, as Paul, came to gladly relinquish or give up any prestige that he once had through an impeccable law-observant livingness. What inspired him to count all of that as loss was the infinitely surpassing excellence of Christ Jesus, his Lord. Paul embraced then, as we must and as we are beginning to do, a new liberated livingness in Christ. A new liberated livingness in Christ by the Spirit who raised him from the dead. It's called the newness of life to which we were raised together with Christ in Romans 6, 4. It's called newness of the Spirit by which we serve one another and serve Christ. After the proof was offered from Scriptures in Romans, there is not one righteous, not a single one. Romans 3.10, which is the headline that goes all the way through 3.18. After the proof was offered from Scripture, incontrovertible proof, proof that cannot be refuted, that there is no one righteous, not even a single one in all the human race, in all of its times, from God's view, After that proof was offered, Paul alluded to Psalm 143.2, as we've done many times before, in which it is said, no one living can be justified in God's eyes. And so Paul said, since that's true, let me say, no one, no flesh can ever be justified by the works of the law either. Romans 3.20. Because by the law comes the consciousness of sin. And that's where we lead up to Romans 7. But a few more observations first. By the law, the Sinaitic law. See, we have to distinguish Sinaitic law from law or Torah in general. Torah in general can mean the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament, O-T. Sinaitic law is specifically the law that came from Sinai to Israel, by which Israel was not to be justified. And the same comes when we look at the word rectification. Rectification or justification from dikaiao in the Greek has to be distinguished from rectitude. Rectitude is a state or a condition of divinely approved livingness, a kind of divinely approved livingness. It's a liberated livingness that God approves of. It, it involves righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is the kingdom of God. It's a liberated livingness that we must embrace. By the law comes the consciousness of sin. But even the sacrifices that were offered by the prescription of the law given by Moses could not take away this consciousness. 
Let me read Hebrews 10, 1 and 2 from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's almost like Hebrews and Romans are sort of, let's say, fraternal twins, if not certainly not identical. They are approaching the angle, for the, the same gospel from a different angle. They both start with the scriptures bearing witness, the writings of the prophets bearing witness to the Son. But in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, it says, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Listen to verse 2 of Hebrews 10. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So even the sacrifices that were prescribed under the Levitical rites didn't take away the consciousness of sins. By the law, righteousness or rectitude, God-approved livingness, does not come about. It can't come about. And this is a principle that will also go to our Romans 4 study. Only a consciousness of sin comes about And with it, the continual, urgent, psychological need for another sacrifice. In addition, the law cannot liberate one's enslaved will to sin. Because sin, displaying its depth of sinfulness, its true intrinsic nature, sin revealed its true essential nature in the act of co-opting the law of God for its own purpose, to aggravate enslavement to sin. That's, again, what Romans is about. That's why I'm preceding the exegesis with a lot of, I think, fairly profound principles if you think them through. This is where the truth of God on the left flank of Romans, and when I say left flank of Romans, I'm looking at Romans head on, the horizon of Romans. I see, I read from left to right. I'm not a Hebrew. That would mean I'd read from right to left. If you're Hebrew, you can reverse all this order. But on the left flank, we have Romans 1 through 4. In the center, we have a double center, Romans 5 through 11. That's how I'm viewing it head on. That's the horizon of Romans a topographical or geographical horizon. Then we have the right flank. So I'm viewing it head on. So when we view Romans from this standpoint of a head-on view, this passage that we're studying here in Romans 7 is in the center and this is where the truth of God on the left flank of Romans, as we know it, as we view it head on, as it appears on our horizon, makes its penetration into the center of Romans, specifically Romans 7, 7 through 25. Though this passage is not strictly autobiographical by Paul when he says the word I, He's not strictly giving his autobiography or his autobiographical experience. He's simply showing what the effect of sin is and that it's aggravated by the law, not mitigated by the law. And so you see all these people in Rome that are boasting in the fact that they have observed the law, Paul's showing here that, yes, well, all that does is aggravate sin's control, so you really don't have anything to boast about against your Gentile Christian brothers, do you? All of this is toward creating peace and unity in Rome. But though this passage is not strictly autobiographical, Paul knows what he's talking about because Paul does speak autobiographically, as I mentioned before, in Philippians 3. 
that his blamelessness as to law observance did not liberate him from enslavement to sin because while he was blameless in law observance, he was so enslaved in his will to sin that he continually operated in a murderous motive toward God's own people. Imagine the realization that he had. I'm blameless as far as observance of the law. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day. I outshined all my contemporaries, he says in another place, in academics under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis. And yet he said, as my religious zeal, I persecuted the community of God. That's profound. No wonder he said, I consider all that stuff, that whole list I just made, as dung in comparison with the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So though this passage that we're studying is not strictly autobiographical, Paul speaks, does speak autobiographically in Philippians 3. That is, blamelessness as to law observance did not liberate him from enslavement to sin because in the same breath he speaks of his blamelessness as far as law observance. He also speaks of his religious zeal, which led him to persecute the messianic community. J. Lewis Martin put it well in a book that I'm very, very glad I read. I wish I had read this before I read his study in Galatians. But he said on page 80 of his very important book, and it is important, Theological Issues in the Letters of Paul, he says, quote, Paul's zealous observance of the law failed to liberate him from enslavement to the elements of the cosmos. That liberation came through God's apocalypse of Jesus Christ, not through any religion, including that of Judaism. And he goes on to explain in other chapters that Galatians was not an anti-Judaic document at all. There are people that have accused Paul of that, and that's not true at all, but that's another time. So before continuing in the exegetical treatment of this chapter, let's remember now and put our arms around the whole exigency of what called forth Romans. What was, where was Paul in his life? Why did he write the epistle? What was the condition of the epistle? Really, what called forth the writing of it? You write a letter for a reason. Someone would say, would you write this letter for, for me to recommend someone to, for something? And you say, sure, I'll do that. It's a, the, the need was for a recommendation, so you write a letter. There was a need for Paul to write this letter. And we have to remember the exigency that occasioned this letter from Paul to those who were summoned to belong to Jesus Christ and who were called saints in the city of Rome. And I've done this before, but we need to keep our attention on this bigger picture. The apostle to the nations, and that's who he is, according to Romans eleven thirteen, announced his plans to visit them, this church or group of saints in Rome. We can't even call it a church because it was scattered, shattered, polarized, and fragmented. But he planned to come. And he announces his plan to come and visit them and to hopefully remain for a mutually beneficial season with them before going on to Spain with the power of God for salvation, which means the gospel. Wherever Paul went, he took the power of God for salvation with him. That's pretty neat. So do you. The gospel of God about his royal son. But first, and he announces this very clear, he's very open about what he's going to do. And this is significant. He planned to go to Jerusalem to bring a relief fund to the persecuted and ostracized saints in the Judean churches, especially the one in Jerusalem. They were being persecuted. 
mainly by their own countrymen. And so he also expressed his anxiety about it. He was going to be giving a gift of substantial amount of financial aid to this persecuted church, but he also had a lot of anxiety. He was bringing this offering from the Greek churches, Achaia, which is southern Greece, Macedonia, which is northern Greece. He also collected some from the Galatian churches. He was in anxiety about whether or not it would be received by the leadership in the church of Jerusalem. Paul was not on good terms with James. And, well, he shouldn't have been. James, really, if you read James, you read pretty much the Jewish Christian perspective, not Paul's gospel in James. James was okay, but James also let certain preachers, like the one that Paul is opposing here, have their free way. He didn't, he didn't stop them, and he could have because he had leadership in the church. There was also a group of false brothers that Paul called them bluntly in Galatians that James didn't do much to stop. In fact, James even wrote a letter, and it's in Book of Acts, about, well, let's not force them to be circumcised, but let's tell them they ought to obey some dietary rules. Well, why? You say, how dare you critique James? He's the Lord's brother. I like Paul's attitude. I don't care who they are. It makes no difference to me who they were or whether they have reputation. I don't care. They're called the pillars of the church, he says. But when it's wrong, it's wrong. And he called, he called him out on it. Now, I'm not against James. I'm not against the epistle of James. I've taught the epistle of James. He's... I think he's knocking down both the idea of justification by human faith and justification by human works in his own creative way. But Paul's a little anxious that they're not going to receive the gift that he gives them. The distinct possibility existed that they would not be receptive to Paul given his history with the leadership there as we see it in Galatians. Galatians reveals this whole rift that he had with them. So in writing Romans, another profound concern was moving Paul, though. There were deep divisions among the saints in Rome, as we've seen. One of the reasons for this rift was the false Gentile Christian assumption. Now, these are Christian assumptions now. False Gentile Christian assumption that God had forsaken Israel after the flesh. And on the other hand, there was a false assumption nourished by the leader of the law-observant mission to the Gentiles that Greeks or Gentiles or pagans had to observe circumcision, the males, that is, and at least the commandments of Torah having to do with days and diets for men and women alike. As the offering from the churches in southern Greece Macedonia and Galatia would be delivered with the hope of the furtherance of unity among the saints, the Greek churches, and the church in Jerusalem. So the epistle to the Romans was written with peaceful unity in mind. Romans 1.7, Romans 5.1, Romans 15.13, all attest to that. Now, in Romans 11, at the right center section of the epistle, from our head-on perspective, Paul slams the Gentile boast, a Gentile Christian boast, still alive and well in some quarters today, that gave rise to what is known today as replacement theology otherwise known as supersessionism. Those are two fancy theological terms. But the idea is, it's, what it is, is the arrogant and presumptuous notion that God had abandoned Israel, his former people of election, and that he had replaced them with the Gentiles or a Gentile Christian church. That's not at all 
what he did. But here in the left center section, specifically Romans 7, 7 to 25, Paul hits head on the Gentile Christian excluding Jewish Christian assumption that law observance leads to justification in God's eyes. And so he does so in a very dramatic fashion to show that the law does nothing to justify its devotees or its observers, nor does it do anything to liberate the enslaved will of its adherents to sin. Sin enslaves the will of all humankind, including, and Paul will even say now, especially the person who observes the law with a view to obtaining rectitude in God's eyes by it. This is all headed toward a verse that's very difficult to interpret, but it's Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for rectitude to everyone who believes, meaning everyone who, in whom God elicits faith comes to realize that Christ is the end of any seeking of rectitude by the law or really by any other human works. So here we are in Romans 7. Here we have hit Romans 7 after 35 minutes. And this is my translation so far. You see, I'm teaching Romans here. And I'm getting into the what, something I don't think a lot of people have done yet. Yes, let's talk about the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, but not just as a lofty theological principle. Is it really in there in the raw guts of the Greek text? Is it really there? And we're finding it is. Now, Paul says, and I'm very briefly going to go through this to get us up to speed. The first paragraph we already went through. Paul says, my translation now, slightly expanded. Paul writes, I am speaking now to those who know Torah. They know the Old Testament. They know the law. Are you not knowing, brothers and sisters, that the law lords it over a person only for the time in which he's alive. Remember Romans 3.20 on the left flank. No one alive can be justified in God's sight. Leastwise by the law. For example, Paul says, a married woman is bound by Torah, the law, to her husband while he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the Torah's directive or the Torah's commandment, we could say, the part of it that deals with husbands. Now, we could get a little facetious here and say, you don't have to submit to your husband if he's no longer with us. In other words, consequently, then, in verse 3, if while her husband is still alive, And she gives herself to another man. She will be called an adulterer. But if her husband dies, she is free from that directive of Torah. And she will not be called an adulterer if she marries another man. Verse 4. In an analogous way, my brothers and sisters... You were put to death. Killed is the word. Deuteronomy 32, 39 in the Targum version brings that out very powerfully. You were killed. You were put to death with regard to the law, Torah, through the crucified and dead body of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. That is, Christ and him crucified is all that Paul intends to communicate to them. And as I've said before, this is the sweet syrup that remains when all the sap is boiled down. Christ and him crucified. 
That's a Vermont idiom, in case you're wondering, from a Vermont idiot. So, he says, so that you may belong to another man. This is Jesus, the son of man, the man Christ Jesus. You belong to him. You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. He bought you with a price. So, he goes on to say, namely, the man who has been raised from the dead in order to bear fruit for God. The marriage metaphor continues in being fruitful and multiplying, being married to Christ. Fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, as we'll see. But verse 5, for you see, as long as we were existing in the flesh or in the Adamic ontology, sinful passions... And that doesn't mean just sensual or sexual passions, although they're included. But it also includes the intense desire for preeminence over others, which was motivating on one side the Jewish Christians who thought the Gentiles were out because they weren't circumcised, and the Gentile Christians who thought the Jewish Christians were out because God had forsaken and abandoned that old election. Both are wrong. So, you see, as long as we were existing in the Adamic ontology, sinful passions operated through the law in every part of our body, our whole being, to bear fruit for death. Death is that also that cosmic power who reigned as our former Lord through sin. But verse 6, but now... Yes, even now, we have been released from the Torah, meaning the Sinaitic law illustrated in the Torah of marriage, having died to what was holding us so that we may serve in the never-antiquated newness of the Spirit and not in the obsoleteness of the letter, which is observance of the strictures of Torah, in the power failure of the Adamic ontology. Here's where we pick up, verse 7. What then? Is the Mosaic law, the Sinaitic law, sin? Most certainly not, he says. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin is if it were not for the law. By the law comes the consciousness of sin. For example, I would not know what it is to covet if the law had not commanded, do not covet. But sin, commandeering or co-opting or we could say hijacking or even kidnapping the commandment as a base of operations, this is a military terminology here, sin Let's call it commandeering the commandment of the law, for example, do not covet, as a base of operations, brought about in me every kind of covetous lust. Who's me there? Not just Paul. This is anyone who is attempting to secure rectitude or to free the will through adherence to the law's commands. Sin, commandeering the commandment as a base of operations, brought about in me every kind of covetous lust. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now once I was alive without the law. Now he's almost speaking as if he were Adam before the commandment. Do not touch, do not eat, rather. Do not eat, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you do, you'll die. Now that very commandment was what Satan used, the adversary used to seduce Eve. Sin takes advantage of the law. 
whatever the law is from God, whether it's do not covet or do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once I was alive without the law, but then the commandment came and sin was revived and I died. I discovered that the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, capital S-I-N is a cosmic power, seizing a base of operations through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. You never see the law killing. It's sin killing through the law. The law didn't kill me, Paul says. Sin killed me through the law. The law was the weapon that sin used. Commandments issued and even obeyed. Here's the principle. Commandments issued and even obeyed by a will enslaved to sin do not and cannot result in rectitude in God's eyes. The law is impotent to justify just as it is impotent to give life. Both of these come in Galatians 3.21. The law is impotent because it cannot justify or set right or liberate the will from slavery. But the law is also impotent to give life. So the act of obedience by Jesus Christ to the death of the cross and his resurrection gives life, gives justifying life to all of humankind in Romans 5.18. And as the scripture says, we're going to see in Romans, what the law could not do, what the law was impotent to do, God did. God did. God did it. You're going to set things right in the universe. You got to do it yourself, says God. Commandments issued and even obeyed by a will enslaved to sin do not and cannot result in rectitude in God's eyes. The law is impotent to justify or to rectify just as it is impotent to give life. Let's continue. Romans 7. Verse 12. So then, he says, the Torah, the law, is holy and the commandment, that's the Sinaitic law, the Torah in toto is holy and the commandment, that which the Torah requires of man is holy, righteous, and intrinsically good benevolently intentioned. Paul is clearing up a misunderstanding here. In Galatians, it almost sounded like he was saying the law is no good. And Paul is destroying the law of Moses. Here he clarifies and said, no, listen, the law is holy. The law and the commandment that the law brings forth is holy, righteous, and intrinsically good. The deceitful sinfulness of sin is brought out Because it takes what is holy and good and intrinsically righteous and uses it for its own benefit, for its own purposes. Now, the commandment of the Torah boils down to and, in fact, gathers up all the responsibility of humankind in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love of one's neighbor. Romans 13, 8 to 10, Paul says, All the law is anakephaleao, gathered up, summed up, and brought under the headship of this one thing, that you love your neighbor as yourself. You say, what about loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Yeah, that's the only way you love your neighbor as yourself, through the gift of God's own love. Romans 7.13, so did something inherently good, the law, become the cause of my death? Consider a medical conclusion. Cause of death, the law. That's not what he's saying. Did something inherently good, the law of God and the commandment of the law, 
Did that become the cause of my death? Of course not, Meganoito. On the contrary, Allah, strong adversative. Sin has a cosmic power here, capital S-I-N. In order to be manifested as sin, which I would translate as in order to be shown to be the real culprit, the homicidal maniac here, the killer. Sin, in order to be manifested or exposed as the culprit, brought about death in me through that which is intrinsically good. So that through the commandment, sin might become immeasurably sinful. In other words, the law gave sin the occasion to be its total self. I got to be me. You know who said that? Sin itself says that. I got to be me. I got to be no longer I. The law gave sin the occasion to be its total self as a murderer of human beings. A homicidal maniac, we could say. Sin says, I got to be me, and it realizes its full identity by using the inherently, essentially good law of God as a weapon to kill its devotees. By making its adherents think that it's the means for rectification in God's eyes and that it's the giver of life and the liberation of the human will. That's what sin tells you the law is, and it isn't that. It's holy and just, spiritual and good, intrinsically good in every way. But it isn't the means for your justification. Sin would have you think that observance of the law liberates your will. But it only further enslaves it. Now, this teaching is being presented in somewhat of an obscure way in order to be clarified later. But we got to bring it up. That's the hard thing that the teacher has to do. You got to bring forth stuff that's unfamiliar, unclear, and then keep hitting it until it's clear as a mirror. But Christ is the end of the law as a means for justification and for rectitude to everyone who believes. In other words, when God elicits faith in you after he gives you life, you know what you come to realize? Christ is righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. I'm justified because God was faithful to his son to raise him from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, all were raised. If one died for all, then all died when he died. So, when he died, he was justified. If he was justified when he died, then all were justified. And if when he was raised, we were raised together with him, we were given the gift of justifying life. Faith is the thing that God gives us after he gives us life so that we can realize Christ is the end of that whole thinking that the law can be for righteousness, that the law can lead to righteousness. That's why Romans 10.4 says to everyone who believes. It doesn't mean that you, you're justified by believing. It means that being justified by Christ's death, he gives you faith so that you can realize that there is no law that leads to life. Only Christ is our righteousness. So Christ is the end of the law as a means for justification and for rectitude, and this is realized by everyone who believes or by everyone in whom God elicits faith in the fidelity of Christ. If the law is not seen or perceived as the means of righteousness or as the way of being right in God's eyes, then the will is no longer enslaved by sin, but liberated by Christ.
to be an imperial slave to the king of kings. That's freedom. According to Genesis 4, 7, after Cain murdered his brother Abel, God said to him in Genesis 4, 7, if you are doing what is good, shouldn't you hold your head high? Says the complete Jewish Bible. And if you don't do what is good, he said to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. The first person who personified sin as a crouching tiger, as it were, is God. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants you, but you can rule over it. What was he talking about? For one thing, he was saying that observing the law is not doing what is good. If you do what is good... But if you don't do what is good, sin is crouching at the door. Observing the law is not doing what is good. So sin is crouching at the door. That's why Paul could observe the law and then kill Christians. Because doing the law wasn't doing good. The law was good, but doing the law with the intention of thinking that you're rectified by it Sin is actually have is, is crouching at the door of your observance of the law. That's why murder is always the result of people who believe themselves to be justified by any kind of law, whether it's an Islamic or a Judaic or any other kind of law. And Judaism does not teach that, incidentally. So observing the law is not doing what is good because sin crouches at the door when one does the law under the assumption, and here's where the problem is, under the assumption that justification in God's eyes comes by it. Now if law observance does not give life or liberation or rectitude, and God in Christ does... then what separates and segregates Jew from Gentile in Christ and Gentile from Jew? What is there to separate you? There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female, meaning there are no verses anymore. Versus against. We'll have to take that up in a different way. But look, in closing, let's look at this. Romans seven twelve. the law is what? It's holy. Itself. The law is not sin. That was the assumption people made. You know, Paul thinks the law is sin. The way he taught in Galatians in his theological fury. No, Paul says the law is not sin. The law is holy. Its commandment is right. Its commandment is good. In verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is intrinsically spiritual. Pneumatikos. Meaning its requirement of rectitude is fulfilled only by the spirit. Which we'll pick up in Romans 8, 4. But he says, but I am of the flesh. Having been sold as a slave to sin. So being in the flesh here, he's not just talking about being a human being. He's talking about being in the flesh as one who was sold to sin as a slave. I'm enslaved to sin. And so the law that's spiritual makes a command to me that I, even in fulfilling it by the letter, I'm not free from slavery to sin. I am of the flesh having been sold as a slave to sin. And then verse 15, he says, I don't even recognize what I'm producing. I don't even, I don't, I, I can't, I don't recognize it as being from me because I didn't intend that. I do not recognize what I'm producing because I do not practice what I intend to do but I do the very thing I abhor, hate, detest. In other words, what comes out of me 
was not intended by me. I don't even say, you can actually say it's not an excuse. That wasn't me. I don't recognize it as the fruit of my intention. He's speaking here not as an autobiographical sketch of his life before or after salvation. He's speaking to the Jewish Christians who assume that observance of the law brings them liberation from enslavement to sin, and it doesn't. All it does is aggravate the enslavement of sin. So they really have nothing to boast about against their Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. So here's the connection. Paul may be thinking in the same mode as in Galatians 5.17 when he tells the Galatians, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, inclines against the flesh and the flesh inclines you meaning the whole community that's a community thing incidentally the whole thing about the works of the flesh and not inheriting the kingdom of God is not about individual production it's about a whole community of believers if they're inclined by the spirit that community will demonstrate the kingdom of God if they are inclined by the flesh if they're inclined to be justified by the law then the works of the flesh are manifested by their attempts to be righteous by the law in Galatians 5:17 Paul says when the spirit lusts against or desires against or inclines the whole community against the flesh and the flesh at the same time inclines the community against the spirit, the result is that you cannot do the things that you want to do. Meaning, you Galatians, in the context, can't do what these teachers, these nomistic teachers are telling you to do. You can't do it. You'll do the opposite of it by, being att- by attempting to be justified by the law. And so, he tells the Galatians when they try to do what the nomistic teachers tell them to do, that is, be rectified by the works of the law, they can't do it because the flesh inclines the whole community against the spirit. Galatians were, the Galatians churches were in danger of becoming a community that had no inheritance of the kingdom of God in time, no experience of the kingdom of God, because the whole community was beginning to lean toward a justification by the works of the law, which would say that Christ died for no reason at all. It's not saying you go to hell if you do these things. That's, that's the furthest thing from Paul's mind. Of course, it's the closest thing to the mind of preachers today and evangelists who have no understanding of the verse-by-verse exegesis. They can't fulfill the law that says love your neighbor because love is produced by the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Just as faithfulness is. There are three trios in the nine fruits of the Spirit, and each one begins with a lead Singer, as it were. Three trios, lead singer. Love, joy, peace. Patience heads the second trio. Faithfulness. It's a faith that works by love. The works of the flesh that are done or produced while trying to be justified by works of the law exempt that community from being an expression of the kingdom of God which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to take this up in the future. And these are just some of the principles. We're, I'm not done with Romans 7 yet. I'm glad you're relieved about that because I've got a lot more to teach. What Paul is leading into is what he said in Galatians 5, for we, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as opposed to the teachers through the flesh, the false teachers, We keep eagerly waiting for the realized hope of rectitude. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision is anything at all, nor is a foreskin anything. The retaining of a foreskin. 
But what is really something is faith working with love. For this, Father, we thank you. We pray that you will open our eyes to understand these things that we cannot understand in the energy of the flesh or by the power that a preacher has to enlighten. For we have no power to enlighten. Thank God. But light comes through the exposition of your truth. The exposition of your word gives light. And it gives understanding to the naive, 